You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So while we're waiting, this isn't this is important information, but maybe not critical information. <laughs> My name is Ginger Mayfield, and um, I've been a member of the Advent for ten years ish. Um, and actually worked in the youth ministry department with Cameron briefly for a hot minute. And I work as a private college guidance counselor now. Um, and I'm not going to talk this week as much about how I got to what I'm doing now. I'm going to talk about that next week. And this is just a little bit of an overview. Cameron, um, Cameron picked the title for this course before I even decided what I was really going to talk about it. So this isn't really going to be um, super relevant to the actual title. I mean, it certainly can be relevant to the title. So today is going to be more of an orientation and an overview of how we should maybe approach the current culture surrounding college admissions as Christians. And next week is going to be much, much, much um, more practical. So if you're looking for a lot more practical things, that's next week. This is more of a an overview. So, um, I am recording this. Oh, perfect. Um, so yes, so this is being recorded and, um, oh wait, I don't think I'm, I don't, I hate technology. Who's ever taught if it's red and blinking, what does that mean? Do you think that's good? I think so too. Yeah, I think that's I mean, I see my time going. Then yes. Okay. So I'm going to open us. I really liked the collect from the from today. So I'm going to open us with the collect that um, Craig read. Oh, I hope this is recording. I'm sorry, Gil, if it's not. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we pray thee that thy grace may always proceed and follow us and make us continually to be given to all good works through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. So I was actually teaching um, for something else. (laughs) I was in the book of Esther this week, which... I'm sure does not seem like a logical scripture to apply to college admissions, but I feel like this is the scripture that the Lord gave me to bring to you today. So we're going to trust in his provision for this. So I have enlisted my assistant, Tommy, to do all my scripture reading. And so first, he's going to read from Esther um, 1 and 2, and that is in the smaller print. So Tommy, come up here so you'll be recorded when you read the scripture. Maybe may be recorded. It's unclear. <laughs> it says red light activated. Let me just press it on and off real quick. It's, oh, wait, I got to hold it. Now it's recording. I think when it's blinking, it's not. There we go. All right. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The, uh, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. 
and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. <clears throat> On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women woman who pleases the queen be que the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive when with Oh, man, this is really challenging. With this is why I got my husband to read it. <laughs> Mordecai had a cousin named Hasada, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge who was who had charge of the harem she pleased him and won his favor immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food he assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best palace in the harem esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because mordecai had forbidden her to do so every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how esther was and what was happening to her before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted to, was given to her to take from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgad, <laughs> the unique king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abahai, <laughs> to go to the king. I told Tommy to practice this, and he refused. I mean, 
What would pra- how would practicing have helped? She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her a queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Thank you, Tommy. So I'm sure you are all wondering why in the world Tommy just read to you two whole chapters of the book of Esther and how I'm going to apply it to college admissions. And since we're short on time, I'm going to go really fast. So as I said before, next week is going to be much more practical. I'm going to leave more time for questions. I'm going to give you more background of myself and why I even, you know, should be up here in front of you talking about this. But that is not for today. So here's what we're going to talk about. So. What just happened to what we read? So the Jews are living in dispersion in Persia. This is after the Babylonian exile. Um, and in fact, some of the Jews had already been returning back to their land. So the Jews that are in Persia are a religious minority in a culture that is obsessed with power, wealth, and appearances. So the cultural narrative here that they're living under is that you are only worthy if you have wealth, power, and beauty. And we see this through everything that you can read and that Tommy read. We see a king here who has a six-month party where he parades every single last bit of wealth that he has in front of his guests. Um, And then he gets drunk and really over the top and sends seven eunuchs to fetch his queen for him. She refuses. This ticks him off. She gets deposed. And then his council comes up with this bright idea of how he should find his new queen. And we see that this is, again, just a completely appearance-driven process. We read basically about this international beauty pageant that the king has to find his next queen. These women were prepared with special diets and extensive beauty treatments for a year. And then they each get a one-night audition in the king's bedroom. So suffice it to say they're not being judged on their personal character. You know, he wasn't... uh, he wasn't asking them if they'd read any like good books lately. Um, so and this is kind of tragic. If they didn't pass that test, they live forever in the, the king's harem. They can never, even if he never calls them again, they can never get married. They can never have a family. They can never leave. Um, if you're lucky, the mood might strike him right. And he might call you a few times a year um, or every other year. And if you're really lucky, then you might get to be one of his two to three wives. And if you're really, really lucky, what happens to you is what happens to Esther. You're his queen. Um, so after the six-month party and this international beauty treatment or pageant, we can get a few ideas of where the Persian culture at this time believed that worthiness came from. Um, so needless to say, this wasn't a particularly healthier life-giving culture. This is a culture that says that beauty, wealth, and power are what make you worthy. So... The Jews living in this Persian culture are faced with a temptation here, and this temptation is not so different from a major temptation that Christians face living in our broader culture today, but we're here to talk about college admissions. So the main temptation that the Jews in this culture were facing was assimilation. Um, And there are multiple applications of this, of course. We all assimilate as Christians, maybe in ways we shouldn't, into a broader culture. But again, we're here to talk about college admissions. Um, So assimilation to the broader culture is one of the main temptations that I see Christian families falling prey to in the college admissions process. So we're going to talk about that temptation and examine 
the cultural narrative that we're being told about college and the college admissions process. Um, and the, this culture speaks to us in many ways, and, and families are affected to varying degrees by it, but it's just good to know what the culture is saying. Um, so we're going to talk today about the main misconceptions that I frequently come up against in my work with families. So if Xerxes is the very flawed and appearance-obsessed thought leader of this culture, who is the very flawed and appearance-obsessed thought leader of the college admissions world? And I can tell you who one of this, them is, and I'm so excited. There's only one person here, and I'm glad they came, that might know who this person is. His name is Robert Morse. Does anyone know who Robert Morse is? It's Victor, who I thought might know who it was. So Robert Morse is a data scientist at U.S. News and World Report, and he is kind of the mastermind behind the U.S. News and World Report college rankings. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time basically completely annihilating the U.S. News and World Report rankings for you. <laughs> so um, Malcolm Gladwell has a really long-form article about the rankings in The New Yorker that I suggest you can, you can go read. Oh, excuse me, in The Atlantic. Um, so this is a quote from that article from Malcolm Gladwell. There's no direct way to measure the quality of insti an institution, how well a college managed to manages to inform, inspire, and challenge its students. So the U.S. News algorithm relies instead on proxies for quality, and the proxies for educational quality turn out to be flimsy at best. So what are the proxies for quality that U.S. News and World Report uses, and why are they so problematic? I'm not going to go through each of their measures. You can look those up. But the two I'm going to really pick apart are faculty resources and expert opinions. And I'm going to draw here from Rick Clark, who is the director of admissions at Georgia Tech, which is an institution that really benefits from the from a high ranking in U.S. News and World Reports. And he's really critical of these rankings. So I think he's a voice that is worth paying attention to. So he start, this is what he has to say about faculty resources, which account for 20% of a school's overall ranking. So 20% of the rankings methodology is based on a measure titled faculty resources. How do faculty salaries and the number of students in the classroom compare to other universities nationally? So a school sees they're penalized on this measure and ultimately determines that they can move the dial by increasing their average faculty salary by $2,000 annually, which is $8 a day, and they launch a capital campaign to address this metric. Meanwhile, they address the student class size average by hiring more adjuncts to teach courses. Their rankings rise in, as a result. But did those dollars actually change the student experience? Did they make the faculty more invested in their teaching or their research? Knowing these types of efforts are underway nationwide, would a school being 10 or 20 spots different from another impact your, your decision to visit or apply? So the more problematic measure, in my opinion, um, that goes into the rankings is what they call expert opinion. And this is what Rick Clark has to say about that. So faculty resources is 20%. Expert opinion is also 20%. So we're looking at now 40% of what goes into these rankings, the U.S. News and World Report rankings. The academic peer assessment survey, so this is how they figure out expert opinion. It's a survey. 
The Academic Peer Assessment Survey allows top academics, presidents, provosts, dean of admissions, to account for intangibles at peer institutions, such as faculty dedication to teaching. To be honest, you should stop reading at the word survey. A survey, think about it. Do you fill out surveys? Exactly, neither do most people. Two words, human nature, sure. These people may have a bigger title than you, but that behavior does not vary. And that's why they call them, call them statistics. Typical response rates are in the 20 to 40% range. So we know these are heavily limited from the outset. And as master delegators, you have to wonder, are these presidents, provosts, and deans actually completing them personally with no disrespect to them? And when they do, are they answering all the questions or only the, those they are most familiar with? If they're not responding, who is? And even when they do respond, how much can they truly know about all of these other places, given how frenetic their schedules are taking care of their own institution? Oh, so many questions. At best, these peer reviews are incomplete and overvalued, and at worst, myopic and nepotistic. So even though very few people in higher ed actually take the ranking seriously, college presidents are often measured by how much they can get their schools to rise in these rankings. Um, these rankings also measure how selective an incoming freshman class is through standardized test scores and high school GPA, but the only outcome, student outcome, and after all colleges for the students that the rankings consider is college graduation rate, which is not an important but then again, there is no ranking that can capture how much your student has actually learned at any given university, or how much your child can learn and succeed at any given university. So ranking a university on the standardized test scores of the 18-year-olds that are matriculating there is like giving a hospital that only healthy people walk into for treatment an A+. Um, this measure cannot account for transformation and improvement, and it surely leaves no grace for late bloomers. Um, and the colleges, there are a lot of colleges that do a lot to help students who maybe have not as been as successful in high school as they would have liked to be. And those kind of colleges are gonna be penalized in a system like this. So what the rankings ultimately do is set up a world where highly selective equals good, and not very selective equals not good. So there are 3,000 four-year colleges and universities in the United States, and only 50 admit less than 25% of the people that apply there. But those are the 50 that we focus on, that we think about, that we you know, want to apply to. Um, so the truth is that most colleges accept most people who apply there, but that truth is eclipsed by this culture that keeps us in fear and promotes this illusion of like scarcity, and that's just not true. Um, so that is the first point, that the rankings set up a culture that says, a school's worth is determined on its selectivity, not actually what happens to individual students at the school. So, um, I'm gonna, I'm fast forwarding a little bit because I'm running out of time. Um, okay, the third kind of lie that I think that this culture um, 
the broader culture surrounding college admissions tells us is that a sensible degree from a selective or at least well-known college guarantees your child's success. And the truth is that it just flat out doesn't. Not only does a sensible degree from a selective or well-known college not guarantee you freedom from the trials and tribulations of life, it really can't even guarantee you financial success. There are no guarantees. And any of us who've lived any amount of time know that deep down, but when we start hearing the promises that colleges are making, and you know, when they kind of trot out the list of employers that recruit on their campus or their job placement rate, it feeds into that desire to want a guarantee, to want a sure bet, to want a slam dunk. And they know that, and marketers know that, and that's why they put that information out there. Um, so there are no guarantees. Your child will end up being more successful in the long run if they choose a major that really interests them, whether that's philosophy or engineering. And know this, only 27% of college graduates end up doing anything closely related to their major. And 80% of, of students change their major once in college. I mean, when I have students come to my office, they are all coming initially with like a very practical kind of pre-professional skill-based major. No one's coming being like, I wanna find the best philosophy degree out there. Um, and so, and that's part of, I think it's because they have to think, they're thinking, I have to get something that has a return on investment. And a lot of this doesn't have a return on investment that you can really measure, but colleges are trying to make you believe that, that there is. So what is more important is what your child does at college and the opportunities they take advantage of while they are there than where they actually go. So certain majors and certain schools can certainly give the appearance of slam dunks, but in reality, there are no guarantees. There are recessions, technologies evolve, and certain careers end up oversaturated. So a culture that is based on appearances promises that success is an escalator that you get on and like right college, right major is the first step. And if you take that right first step, it promises that the rest of your life is a chart that's gonna trend up and to the right. Yeah, this is the right. <laughs> and that's just not true. And we know that's not true. Deep down, we know that's not true, but we want it to be true for our children because we love them so much. Um, so this is my last point on how we often assimilate into the current culture surrounding college admission. The college admissions culture we live in that is based on appearances always, always leads with the question, where are you going to school? And never ask the, never ever ask the question, why are you going to college and what is really important to you? If you have assimilated too much into the culture, we lead with the where and never visit the question of why and what. And in turn, the student and the family don't have the opportunity to evaluate what is really important to them and what they believe as a family that the purpose of an education that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars is for. Um, so something, this is gonna sound like a really annoying Sunday school example, but I wanted to bring an example of this in my own life. So something that was important to me when I was looking at colleges was that I went to a school that had a Christian ministry that was not just student-led. I wanted it to have a staff member um, who was responsible for it. Um, and this, that 
criteria alone, based on something that was really important to me, took a school that was really good for me on paper off my list. And I even gave up swimming in college for that. Um, but that's something that was important to me. And I was thankfully given the space and asked the right questions to help me figure that out. And so what is important to you and your family might be different. Certainly, I don't believe that every Christian teenager has to evaluate colleges through the same lens that I was. But that's just an example of the questions that you can kind of ask or the kind of answers you can kind of get to when you ask the what is really important to you and why are you going to college? As an aside, um, if you if your child has struggled with anxiety over schoolwork or otherwise or depression or an eating disorder, one thing that is most likely important to you is that your child enter in an environment where they can be healthy and have support. That alone is going to knock off a lot of schools that are known to be pressure cookers or socially very intense right off the list. And that is a good thing for your child. And it's a good thing for your family. Um, that is letting the why and the what inform the where. Um, so the culture that leads with the question of where first says people as individuals don't matter. So over Thanksgiving, ask your niece or nephew why they want to go to college and what is really important to them when they're looking at colleges. Um, you know, and this is just a quick example. I, I a lot of times give students I work with like a list of student body characteristics that they'd like to see at their potential colleges. It just kind of gives me a general idea of kind of what they're interested in. And, you know, I, I mean, more times than I can count, I've had a student who's listed outdoorsy, laid back, artsy, and they haven't circled anything on the list that includes scholarly, ambitious, focused. And then I'll get an email from the parent like, well, we're in Boston, we're going to see Harvard and MIT, you know, and and we laugh and even I shake my head, but the truth is, is that is a huge opportunity cost. It's a huge opportunity cost because that's not getting your child closer to a place that could be a good fit for them. That's you wanting to make your child maybe into someone they're not and force them into an environment that frankly, even if they can be admitted, is not a great place for them. So. So that's the last point. A culture that is obsessed with appearances always asks where before why or what. So, Tommy, come read the rest of this scripture. Sorry, I know I've thrown a lot at you. All right. All right. This is Esther 4. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, Mordecai he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position 
for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendant will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right, so what's going on here? I'm sorry. I just fast-forwarded five years in this Old Testament narrative. So basically what you need to know is Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, they're both Jews, remember, he has refused to bow to Haman, who is basically the prime minister, and he's an evil and prideful man. And instead of just punishing Mordecai, Haman has um, tricked the king into declaring a decree that every Jew will be annihilated on a future date. And that date has been set. So Mordecai is really upset about this. Esther is so out of touch with her identity as a Jew and so separate from her people that she doesn't even know this has happened. So we see she hears Mordecai's upset. She sends her helper down to ask um, what's going on. And Mordecai is asking her for help. And at first she says no. She says, which this is true, she cannot enter the king's presence without being called because she could be killed. And she hasn't seen the king in 30 days. And this guy wouldn't sleep in alone at night. So this is what's important about this. Mordecai's response to her is, look, the Jews are God's chosen people. He is not going to let us be annihilated. We have, you know, he has given us his word. He has given us his covenant. So even if you don't choose to help us, Esther, you're still going to die. But the Jews and God's family will be preserved either way. God has made a covenant with us. And then Mordecai says the most impactful verse in the whole book of Esther, which is 414. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. The Hebrew verb of the word come here is passive and can actually be translated as brought, meaning Esther's life has always been ordered by the God that created the universe and the God that made the covenant with Abram, that this group of people, God's family, the Jews, were God's beloved. So God gave Esther her beauty, and God ordered all the circumstances in her life for a very specific purpose. The Jews in Persia were living in a time where God was barely visible to them. In fact, the name of God is mentioned nowhere in this book. So we see in the book of Esther, and honestly frequently in our own lives, that God often works in our lives through seemingly ordinary providence. God ordering our steps so that we are in the right place at the right time. And sometimes God gives us the great gift of being able to look back and clearly see that along the way, there was a quiet faithfulness that we could not always perceive. So what is Esther's response to Mordecai's suggestion that all the circumstances in her life have been ordered by God and actually have had very little to do with her own agency? Um, We see her begin to identify with her people again. She had been hiding her faith and her heritage all this time, and she had assimilated into this culture completely, and she'd done really well in it. Um, She had broken daily many laws that should have governed her life as a Jew, And we see grace in that God does not count this against her and allows her to be used to save her people and further his work in the world. Everything changes for Esther when she remembers that she is chosen by God and he has promised redemption to her through his covenant. So this is how we fight back against assimilating too much in a culture that is not our own as Christians. We remember our identity as the chosen people of God and that we are redeemed through the complete work of Christ on the cross for us. So as a family, the way that you can hold the college admissions process 
with an open hand is to identify with the people of God and to remember and meditate on God's promises to his people, that he loves us and his plan for our lives is ultimately good, even though there are setbacks and sufferings this side of heaven. Esther is a signpost for us. She points us to Christ, who in every way identified with us and like Esther, only through that identification is able to intervene for us and save us. So real beauty and worthiness are not determined by the standards of folks like Xerxes or the current culture surrounding college admissions or the current culture surrounding many things in our lives and the lives of our children. Real beauty and worthiness are given to us by Christ, and it is Christ's own worthiness and beauty that we are given. And Christ laid aside his power so that we could be reconciled to God. So I'm going to end with a personal story. Hopefully it'll only take two minutes. Um, So this is kind of my own, like, it's just my own story about being brought, about college admissions and how I was brought to a certain place at a certain time. So some of you who know me well know that I was born on a bathroom floor to a teenage mom who didn't know she was pregnant. So I went into foster care and I was adopted at seven weeks old. So my parents, my adopted parents, met at Vanderbilt, but I never once thought about attending Vanderbilt. I didn't even visit Vanderbilt until October of my senior year. And as I mentioned, I was looking at other schools to potentially swim at. So on the first football game, I feel like I'm getting a little emotional. On the first football game of my freshman year, I went with my new friend, Josh Menendez, who's right there, to borrow his older brother's car. And we met his brother and his brother's friend to get the keys. So in this parking lot, literally five feet away from the Faisai house where my parents had met in the 70s, I was introduced to Tommy. So looking back, I can say that I was brought to Vanderbilt. Yes, I worked hard. Yes, I had the scores, but I was brought there. There wasn't a lot of my own agency that actually played a part in me getting there. Um, And looking back, the path to Vanderbilt did not involve any huge events like the parting of the Red Sea. Instead, my path to Vanderbilt involved hundreds of seemingly ordinary moments where I could not at all perceive God's presence. Um, But he was there working out things on my behalf, even when I couldn't sense it. And he brought me to that parking lot on that campus with that person at that moment in 2001. So wherever your child goes to college, whether it's Jeff State, whether it's Auburn, whether it's Harvard, whether it's St. Andrews in Scotland, whether it's Duke, I can assure you it is going to, without a doubt, be the place that they are brought to by a God who loves them, redeems them, and by the blood of his son, keeps all his promises to them. So that was a lot. Next week's going to be much more practical. So come back. (laughs) Oh, um, go in peace. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.